Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, this is a personal celebration for me. We complete a chapter. And we complete actually a a three-chapter section of Scripture that has dealt with a singular topic expressed in a variety of ways, the topic of uh, Christian liberty. And it is a greatly misunderstood and misapplied topic within our Christian church today. The principle of Christian liberty is very, very clear as Paul makes it known to us in chapter 8, where he says, be careful that your liberty does not cause your brother to stumble. So with what we assume to be okay in the gray areas of life, those areas that God has not strictly instructed or specifically forbidden, that's the gray areas of life, and we have varying degrees of agreement on the gray areas of life. And so as we think about these gray areas, how we pursue these areas in our lives need to be done with great caution so as to not be a stumbling block to a brother who is less mature, who is not in the same part of the journey that we are in. The problem is, is that we can inadvertently lead them back into an area of life that they feel like they've been set free from, or we can violate their conscience in something that they've not yet been freed from in their understanding. So one of the great examples of my own life as a young Christian who grew up on heavy metal rock, when I saw believers that I trusted and respected that I assumed to be mature, and I saw their sampling of music in their car, I would go, well, that's the same stuff I just threw away. Why would they be listening to that? Is there something wrong with me? Is this okay? And it caused me to question my own commitment to the Lord. The same thing with movies, the same thing with various kinds of entertainment. What you and I take for granted as being okay, someone else might not be there yet, and we can inadvertently offend them or lead them into an area that they feel like God has graciously set them free from. So the principle in exercising our Christian liberty is love for others. Deferring to them as opposed to pursuing our own interests, living out our liberty to the fullest without any consideration of how it might negatively impact somebody who is not in the same place in their journey with the Lord as we are. Now, Paul has applied this principle from the history of Israel, who had a significant and ongoing struggle with idolatry, as well as immorality and complaining against God and testing God. And so last week we looked at Paul's very clear instruction based upon an application from the life of the nation of Israel. And that is very simply this, free, excuse me, flee from idolatry. Now the central issue in this three-chapter section of the book of Corinthians is related to food sacrificed to idols, which you and I don't readily identify with because that's not our own struggle. This was a major struggle for the church in Corinth. And so the question was, can I go to an idol temple and have a meal in that temple? Paul says, no, don't do that because you know that you are joining yourself to what is taking place in that temple, that idol worship that is a part of the meal and the celebration. You need to flee from that. Don't go anywhere near it. Avoid it because of how it's going to impact your brother who may not be as mature as you are 
in your journey with the Lord. So specifically, stop eating in these temples because these celebrations have a very clear expression of worshiping idols. And so in that application, Paul gives three examples or three reasons why fleeing from idolatry is essential. The one, the first one is, it is inconsistent with our identity as Christians. So the question that he poses is this, how can one who shares in the body and blood of Christ in salvation and celebrates it through communion also sit at the table at a meal consecrated to a false god. To do so violates our identity as Christians. This is what Paul summarizes in verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So when there was a sacrifice, everyone was involved in that sacrifice. The people were, they were connected with each other, they were connected with God. And so to sacrifice to an idol is to identify with it, to participate with the idol, and with all others who would sacrifice to it, inconsistent with who we are as Christians. Think of it like this. If you had a friend who visited the first church of Satan, would you feel comfortable going and worshiping there? Well, no, that's inconsistent with who I am as a Christian. Well, in a similar way, Paul would say, don't sit at a meal in a temple where there's going to be a meal consecrated to an idol. It's inconsistent with who you are. The second reason is that it is demonic. We see this in verses 19 and 20. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So as Paul affirmed in chapter 8, the food sacrificed to an idol is nothing. The idol itself is nothing. But Paul says that demons are the spiritual force behind all forms of idolatry. Those who sacrifice to idols sacrifice to these demons, even though they call it something different. There's never a God behind the idol, but there is always a spiritual force, and that force is always evil, it is always demonic, whether the sacrificers recognize it or not. Therefore, stay away. Lastly, it is offensive. And this is expressed as provoking the Lord to jealousy. Worshipping something in addition to Him, or worshipping something instead of him, God will not share his glory with another, and when we fall into idolatry, God will punish. So in this final section of chapter 10, and in what we'll see in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul will provide a bit of a summary, and then he will set forth principles for properly expressing our own sense of liberty. So let's read together 10.23 through 11.1 as we conclude this section on Christian liberty. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience's sake. 
And I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So this final piece of our outline is going to be number six in a continuing outline, and that is liberty for God's glory. Not liberty for your rights, not liberty for your freedom, not liberty for your sake, but liberty for God's glory. So this final piece that we're going to look at is not only the central theme of the entirety of the Christian liberty conversation, but it is the theme of the lives that you and I are to live as Christians. Verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, as we've gone through this Christian liberty and dealt with food sacrifice to idols, we can readily see how this applies to that issue, but really it is to apply to every facet of our life. Whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. So the question is this, how can a Christian truly grapple with this instruction to glorify God in all that I do while intentionally sitting at the table of an idol. How could you do that? How could you intentionally do all for the glory of God and embezzle from your company? Or cheat on your spouse? Or gossip about your sisters and your brothers and your friends in the Christian faith? How can you do that and do it for the glory of God? Well, you can't. So in the same sense... We have to be careful that we aren't living out our Christian liberty in such a way that it is becoming a stumbling block to our brethren. And if that is the case, then we cannot be doing whatever it is we are doing to the glory of God. So first and foremost, our liberty, just like our daily lives, is to be exercised for the glory of God. So there's going to be four principles that will be applicable In our using our liberty for God's glory. Letter A, it is edification over gratification. Think about that. Edification over gratification. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now this is a restatement of how Paul began this entire conversation in chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says all things are lawful, and he is repeating back to the Corinthian church their slogan or their catchphrase for how they approach the gray areas of Christian living. Those things that are not specifically instructed or specifically forbidden in Scripture. So what they say is, hey, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, yeah, but not all things are profitable. Meaning what you consider to be acceptable or okay isn't always beneficial for you or 
for other people. Now let's pause there for just a second. Is it possible that what you and I might consider to be a gray area is actually forbidden in Scripture? Is that possible? Well, yeah, it's possible. Why? Because you and I don't know everything there is to know about Scripture. You and I don't have the entirety of God's instruction memorized. There are to be a continual revealing of willful sin and sin of omission in our lives so that we can repent of that and turn to Him. So it's very likely that what we consider to be gray area is potentially forbidden by God. So we always need to be aware that what we accept into our lives as a gray area may not be profitable because it is actually forbidden by God, or it's a gray area, and you feel okay about it, but it's causing your brother to stumble. So all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Paul then repeats the phrase, all things are lawful, and Paul says, yeah, but not all things edify. That word edify almost always in the New Testament means to build something up spiritually. Here it clearly refers to our liberty building up a weaker brother, not simply liberty for gratification of our own desires. So edification is whatever contributes to spiritual growth, and it is only those things that contribute to our spiritual growth that Paul determines to be profitable or beneficial. It is only those things that are able to edify. Now, very, very quickly, spiritual edification can be found in four very common sense areas. What is the most basic way that our lives are going to be edified spiritually? Well, it's God's Word, right? Exactly right. Number one, or letter I, God's Word is the source of our spiritual edification. Paul would say, in Acts 20.32, I believe this was to the elders, to the church in Ephesus, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among, among all those who are sanctified. You see the purpose of God's Word. It is to edify us. You know, some people read God's Word and we interpret it as a slap on the wrist. You can't do that. Bad boy, bad girl. You should do that. Bad boy, bad girl. Stop doing those things. Start doing those things. But God's Word is simply the source of our spiritual edification. After all, all Scripture is given for what? For teaching, for correction, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. It's not to put a damper on your party. It's not to take the joy and fulfillment out of your life. It is to edify you spiritually. Secondly, preaching and teaching, often referred to as prophesying in Scripture. So preaching and teaching is a means of edification as long as 
It is consistent with the truth of God's Word. Now, does that mean that all preaching and all teaching is edification? No. Why? Because not all preaching and teaching is consistent with the principles that we find in God's Word. So we see this, and we're going to look at this more closely when we get to it. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 and 4. But one who prophesies speaks to man for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, we'll look at this in context of speaking in tongues and what that means, but here you can very clearly see the purpose of public teaching or preaching, and that is edification, exhortation, consolation. It is the spiritual building up of the people. Preaching and teaching that is designed to elicit an emotional response or to guilt or manipulate someone into doing something is not consistent with what God says, and it does not bring about the spiritual edification that it should. Now, thirdly, the third source of spiritual edification is love. Again, this is a part of the central theme of Christian liberty, and that is very simply this, Love edifies. Again, very early and in the study of, of this subject of Christian liberty, verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning all, excuse me, excuse me, now considering things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. My love for you will build you up spiritually because I will be very careful that my sense of liberty doesn't become a stumbling block to you, love edifies or builds up spiritually. Lastly, number four, that is service. Service to God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, the saints to the building up of the body of Christ. Spiritual edification comes from our service to Him to one another. So desiring the edification of self and others is a hallmark of Christian maturity. And this was Paul's personal commitment. He said in Acts 20.20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Think about what Paul says here. I did not hold back from telling you what you needed to hear because it was necessary for your spiritual edification. I did not simply tell you what you wanted to hear so that you would like me and think better of me. You see what Paul's saying here? I did not hold back anything that was profitable to you because Paul's commitment in his ministry to the people and service to the God who saved him was the spiritual edification of those that he ministered to. So the flip side of that is this, to selfishly pursue gratification of our own desires to the detriment of others is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Well, look, brother, I'm going to live my life just how I decided to live it. And if you don't understand it, and if you don't agree with it, and if you don't like it, that's on you. That's not on me. You see, that's not a spiritually mature Christian. That's a Christian who says, my rights, my needs, my choices are more important than what is beneficial to you. 
Think about this when you're raising children. Think all the way back to when your little ones were so dependent upon you. I mean, they couldn't open up the refrigerator and get something to eat. You had to put it before them. Think about how dependent they were on you to clean them, to clothe them, to shelter them, to protect them, to provide for them. You did that to the sacrifice of yourself because it was for the betterment of your children. Right? In a similar way, we are to think about what is best for the brethren. For my own self-denial, because I'm committed to spiritual edification, not self-gratification. When we are faced with a decision about an action that we are going to partake in, we should first ask, do we have a right to do this? Is it forbidden in Scripture? So if the the answer to that question is, no, it's not forbidden in Scripture, then we're okay to do that. The next question is this. Is this action profitable or beneficial for the edification and the building up of myself and of others? Well, if the question that is no, then we shouldn't do it. Now, what you do in the privacy of your home is quite different from what you do in a group of other Christians who might not understand what you're doing or why you have the freedom to do that. So when we're in a group of Christ, when we're in a, when we're with a group of Christians, we need to be very very careful that our sense of liberty doesn't offend where they are in their journey with God. I'll give you an example of this. When I was very early in my walk with the Lord, I was serving in youth ministry. And one of the things that God impressed upon me very, very early was this. I don't have the right to put a movie in front of the minds of these individuals without parental consent or permission. Because I can't oppose my sense of liberty and them seeing that because their parents may not agree. Right? Wouldn't you want that? If you're sending your kids to a youth group, don't you want your youth leader to say, you know, I want to be really careful about what I expose these kids to because I don't want to offend the parents. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to create a problem in their home. You'd say, yes, that's exactly what I want. I know of a church in an area that we came from, and one of the big events that they would have on Saturday nights that would go until 1 o'clock in the morning was the UFC fights that were pay-per-view on TV. Well, I mean, if you feel like that's okay, that's for your decision. But I don't think I want to subject a bunch of kids to that because that's not my prerogative. So this is the idea, is that we don't want to gratify ourselves to the detriment of others. We want to edify others to the denial of our own sense of Christian liberty. That's the first principle. Second principle, others over self. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Very similar to what Paul said in chapter 8, verse 1 that we just looked at. It's a restatement of how our liberty is to be exercised, and it is to be exercised with the well-being of others in mind. So this is perhaps the most difficult aspect of our liberty. It is willingly giving something up because it benefits someone else. In my study, I read uh, an illustration from a pastor who said that uh, he had taught on this passage, and he, after the message, had asked the congregation, when was the last time 
You gave something up for the betterment of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And nobody could think of a thing. I can't think of anything I'm giving up in a gray area that would potentially be for the betterment of someone else. And that's the kind of culture that we're raised in. That's what's so deeply ingrained with us is it's me, myself, and I. It's what I think what I want. It's not what you need or what's good for you. It's all about me. Isn't that the message of our culture? So this gets into the area of self-denial, which is something we don't really excel at. But this self-denial isn't over something sinful that we want or something that is forbidden. It's self-denial over something that we believe is okay, but others may not agree with. And so I'm willing to set that aside because I don't want to do anything that might be difficult for someone else to recognize or understand. So the same principle is shared by Paul with the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2. Very, very familiar verses. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, meaning you're not supposed to completely deny your own interest, but do not look out just for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. It is others over self in order to avoid being a stumbling block. Third principle that we see, liberty over legalism. Now, to some degree, this will counterbalance what we've just said. The true benefit of others should be our first concern, but their standards should not rule everything we do. As much as possible, we should keep from offending the weak consciences of fellow believers, but we should not go to the legalistic extreme of making great issues out of everything we do, because somebody, somewhere, is going to take offense of what we do. Let me explain it like this. If you're with a group of people in your home and you're going to play a game and you think that maybe the game you're going to play would be in a gray area, don't play the game. Just don't play the game. But before you go to have this meeting in your home, don't ask everybody in the church, hey, does anybody have a problem with this game? Because somebody's got a problem with the game. You know what? Somebody's going to have a problem with basically everything we want to do. And you can't live your life that way. Otherwise, you can't leave your house. You just sit there and stare at the wall and go, well, this is not very much fun. What should I do? I can't read that book because that's going to offend this person. And I can't watch that show because it's going to offend that person. I could read the Bible, but some of my friends don't think I should read that section of the Bible. And we're just absolutely paralyzed. So there's a balance in this legalism has no place in the life of Christians and liberty should not devolve devolve into legalism. So, somebody somewhere is going to have an offense with something that we're going to do and isn't that just the great joy of social media of which I do not participate in at all? (laughs) And that's why. Because, you know, everybody's got an opinion. And everybody feels obligated to share their opinion with you. And so you're just stuck. You're just absolutely in a place where you can't 
you can't win. So you don't have to poll the, the entire group to find out if everybody is okay with this, but you need to be mindful of the people that you're gathering with so that you don't offend them in this area that would be considered a gray area, not specifically forbidden or instructed in Scripture. Now this is expressed here in verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, going back to what we learned as we looked at this issue of eating eating meat sacrificed to idols, as a way of review, if you were a worshiper of a particular idol, you would take a chunk of meat to that temple and the priest would sacrifice it. Some of it would be consumed. Some of it would be given to the priest as payment. And then the leftover would be yours to do with whatever you wanted. Some of that meat would end up as a part of a family celebration like a wedding or a banquet or a birthday. But the meat that was given to the priests was given in such excess they couldn't eat it all. And so they would then sell it in the marketplace. So this food that is now for sale in the marketplace originated, or had at least a stop, in a temple where it was sacrificed to an idol. So the part of the question was, can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols, and what about the meat that's been sold in the marketplace? So Paul says, no, don't eat food sacrificed to an idol in the temple, but buying meat in a marketplace... That's fine. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. So if you are going through the market, and again, we can't identify with this because it's so different, but imagine going through Giant with a slab of meat and saying, hey, is anybody offended if I eat this? Is this okay with you if I eat this? Think about doing that. Well, no, you shouldn't eat that. That's bad for you. Triglycerides are high. It's not kosher, whatever it might be. Somebody is going to object to the thing that you're going to eat. Here specifically, it's related to meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So instead of asking the merchant, was this meat sacrificed to an idol? Just buy the meat. Don't ask any questions. Paul says, you're perfectly fine for doing that. Asking for conscience sake here is for our own conscience, not for the conscience of others. Paul makes clear as he continues this, as he quotes from Psalm 24 and verse 26 of chapter 10 here, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Once meat is in the marketplace, it's simply meat. If it is advertised as having been sacrificed to an idol, then avoid it. Paul was very clear about fleeing from idolatry. So if you were to go in the market, Joe's meat market, we sacrifice to whatever, whoever, whatever, don't buy the meat. It's very obvious that that meat's been sacrificed to an idol. But if you just go to a merchant and there's meat that you need and you buy it, that's fine. Don't have an issue with it. So the guideline continues here in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So if you get invited to a non-believer's home for a meal, don't sit down and ask, was this sacrifice to an idol? Was this sacrifice to an idol? Was that sacrifice to an idol? Just eat the meal. But if the guy serving the meal says, hey, by the way, all of this was sacrificed to an idol, well, you're out of luck. You can't eat the meal. That's the guideline that Paul has given. So we should not give up our liberty of eating whatever is placed in front of us unless it is clearly for the edification of someone else who might be offended by 
you knowingly eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. So when we choose to avoid doing certain questionable things, we do not do so from a sense of legalistic compulsion, but from the voluntary restriction of our liberty so that we can help build someone up. So when we restrict our liberty for the sake of a weaker brother, we should also try to help him grow in his understanding of his own Christian freedom. So in other words, we help this, con- we help this believer's conscience grow stronger in order that he can come to enjoy the full freedom of his liberty in Christ and not be restricted in what God says is okay for you to enjoy. The gray area not specifically forbidden in Scripture. Now the fourth principle, and again this is all part of the balance, the last one is refusal over rebuke. Now, I jumped ahead there. I'm sorry. The purpose of God's glory is uh, the purpose of liberty is God's glory. So, hang on to that for just a second. Letter D: refusal over rebuke. Verse 28. If anyone says to you, "This meat, this is meat sacrificed to idols," do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. This example is set in a group of people where someone says, "Hey, by the way, this was sacrificed to the idol, whoever." If that's the case, Paul says, "Don't eat it." for the sake of the conscience of the one who just told you that that meat has been sacrificed to an idol. It is for their benefit, not for your own. Now, rather than rebuking the weaker brother publicly or arguing with them publicly, just give up your freedom. It isn't the time or the place to have the conversation. Willingly give up, refuse that meat over the need or desire to rebuke your brother who is in a different place than you are in your journey. Take up this conversation later in private where you have the ability to share how we are free in Christ. So Paul clarifies this issue of conscience in verse 29. He says, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience. So, we're to modify our actions for the sake of the conscience of another individual, but we're not to modify our own conscience for the sake of others in these gray areas. So, taking an example I gave earlier, a choice of music, if someone thinks that music is bad, you don't change what you think, you just don't expose them to that music. That way you are acting out in integrity in what you believe the Lord has given you freedom to do, but you do it in such a way that it doesn't become a stumbling block for someone else. So we modify our actions for the sake of others, but we don't modify our conscience for the sake of others. The legalism of a weaker brother should not make us legalistic, only gracious as we willingly defer our rights for his benefit. So one's freedom to eat food placed before him should not be condemned by another. Paul is defending liberty while also making allowance for setting that liberty aside for the edification of other people. Now, verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Since the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, partaking of what is set before Paul and him giving thanks to God for it should not be slandered or spoken of negatively by someone else who doesn't agree with that kind of liberty. So to prevent others from slandering our liberty, we must take care to protect weaker Christians in our expression of liberty by deferring 
when the action is offensive to them. All right, the purpose of liberty is God's glory. It is not our own gratification. Verses 31 to 32. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So we give God glory for the liberty that He has provided for us. We also give God glory by restricting our liberty for the well-being of weaker Christians. In this way, we don't offend others, whether they be Jew or Greek or the church of God. We simply joyfully give thanks for what God has provided for us. So all that we do, we, we do for the glory of God and for the salvation of others. Now remember, a big part of Paul's expression of Christian liberty was so that he would not lose the ability to evangelize whether they be Jew or whether they be Gentile. Paul would modify his lifestyle to fit the customs of the people that he was ministering to although he would not violate any of God's moral law. This is why Paul would say, I become all things to all men so that I might win some. So verse 33 and verse 1 of chapter 11, But as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, the profit of many, so that they may be saved, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So the reason Paul became all things to all men, he would adapt to the Jewish custom, to the Gentile custom, was so that he could share the gospel with them and not be excluded from being heard based upon the things that he had done. So this required a careful, intentional expression of Christian freedom with a willingness to deny himself in order to avoid offending others and losing the opportunity to share the gospel message with them. Paul is so confident of his intentional choices that he challenges us to imitate him as he has imitated Christ. We'll close with these incredibly familiar verses, again from Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the Lord of glory, left his rightful place in heaven, emptying himself, coming into this world as a man for the purpose of becoming God's agent of reconciliation to the denial of his self. Just as Paul imitates that kind of emptying, we are to also follow Paul's and emptying ourselves of our own rights, our own desires for the benefit of other people. If we would do that, I think we would probably stand a better chance of having the right to be heard when we want to share with someone the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder how often we've been made aware of how we've offended people to such a degree that they wouldn't ever listen to anything that we had to say about the gospel. Wouldn't that be a tragedy to learn? That I was spiritually seeking, I was spiritually hungry, 
and I saw and heard nothing in you that led me to desire whatever it was you had in your life as a Christian? That'd be pretty tough. I don't believe any of us would ever want that said of us. And so we must take the very significant heart what it is we've learned about Christian liberty. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.